to 6 p.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, David Little, inviting you to join us. Good morning. Welcome to the Physical Culture Music and Art Show. This is Vincent Mezzo, Dean of Discipline, Dean of Personal Training, and the man with a face for radio. (laughs) On today's show, we have Jen Williams and Larry Betts. Jen has spent a lifetime in various dance classes and recently fell in love with rhythm tap dancing. She was a dance major at Renau University in Gainesville, Georgia, and moved to New York City to continue her dance education. She studied massage and personal training at the Swedish Institute and became a licensed massage therapist back in 1998, building a busy private practice in Manhattan and now building a new practice in northwest Philadelphia. She also has the Level 1 Kettlebell Certification and Indian Club Certification and is a next-generation yoga for kids instructor. Jen, welcome. It's great to have you here. I am honored to be here. So thank you for coming in from Philly. I know it's a long trip, but you got to stay back in Brooklyn last night? I did. I did. I spent the night in my old apartment building with my with my Brooklyn family. It was good. It was good to be back. Great. So in terms of the art aspect of your life, when did you first get involved in dance and the arts? Um, it all started when I was three. <laughs> Uh-huh. And I saw a ballet on PBS, and I was like, hmm, I want to do that, Mom. And my mom didn't know much about dance, and she sought out a, a little Dolly Dinkle dance studio in <laughs> rural North Georgia where we lived. And uh, and so I started taking ballet classes, and I just, I just fell in love with ballet. I think, you know, it was so sparkly and girly, mm-hmm. and um, it, was, it was just so fun to move and... I just, I fell in love with it immediately, and that was, that was it. And it was funny because, in you know, when you're three, four, five, six, they just offered these ballet tap combination classes. Mm-hmm. And I just, I really hated the tap. I don't know if I hated the tap. Uh-huh. I just didn't want anything standing in mm-hmm. the way of me and my ballet. Uh-huh. So I didn't want to take the tap. And the teacher there had said, Listen, you got to take these combination classes, but when you're eight, then you'll be old enough that you can take the just ballet mm-hmm. classes. So I was just hanging in till I was eight and I could be done with this tap nonsense. And then I remember we went to sign up for classes when I was eight, and she said, No, you got to still take the tap ballet combo <laughs> classes. And just coming home in the car, I was like, Mom, that's baloney. She lied to me all these years. I don't want to take tap. I'm done with it. And so then, you know, my mom, we found a better, sort of a more serious ballet studio. And and Mm -hmm. that set me on my path. So it was funny that, you know, um, how many, 20 years later, Mm -hmm. 
I sort of fall in love with tap dancing, but uh-huh. it, it was a long road to get mm-hmm. there. But. And you didn't like the black shiny shoes back then when you were a kid? That didn't appeal to you? It didn't really yeah. appeal to me. Like, I think that, I don't know, I liked, I think I liked the structure of, of ballet. Um, mm-hmm. There's such a technique, right, that you, it's this really strict technique. And I'm the oldest of three, so I really appreciate, uh-huh. like, a nice set of rules what's Mm -hmm. expected of me and I can succeed. So I think I appreciated those rules and then the challenge of being able to sort of emote beyond them, beyond the technique. Mm -hmm. And there's also such a ritual to a ballet class. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, you're going to come in, you're going to change into your leotard and tights. You're going to stretch and do your warm up. You're going to go to the bar. You're going to start with your plies and then your tondus and then your frappes and Mm -hmm. then your rondejons. This is such a ritual about the whole thing. And, and I think that there was something about that in my childhood that really appealed to me. And then that on top of just the the music. Classical music is great because there's no lyrics, there's no words. So you mm-hmm. can just make up your own story, whatever that music is. And did tells. they, when you were going, did you have a piano accompanist live no, or did they play music? Not until much yeah. later. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, like mm-hmm. that first school was definitely, you know, as I got more serious, Mostly summer programs. I would do like summer programs at the Atlanta Ballet, and and then we had live music, which is that's heavenly. Mm-hmm. And then much later, um, between my junior and senior year in high school, I did a a summer program in Cleveland, Ohio. The Cleveland Ballet is not around anymore, but they had this mm-hmm. amazing program that was basically like being in conservatory. You know, I just was going in, and I was you know, having ballet classes and flamenco classic and music classes. And Mm -hmm. it was just like eight hours a day for a whole summer. And yeah, it was so great. Um, But it, but it was also very informative because that was when I started realizing I had spent my whole childhood. Just all I wanted to be was a ballerina. That was it. Mm -hmm. There was nothing else. I didn't, I didn't really participate in things in school. I was just a dancer. That was all Mm -hmm. I wanted. And then that summer, being in that very serious program was very humbling. I was mm-hmm. really realizing, like, oh, I'm not really good enough to be a ballerina. Like, this is mm-hmm. this is going to be a stretch. And um, so that was kind of the beginning of thinking about, well, you know, what else might I want to do? Mm-hmm. But you still studied dance in college. I did. I did. Mm-hmm. But I came back from that summer feeling kind of burnt out. And just discouraged, like, mm-hmm. oh, no, because you build so much of your identity around this mm-hmm. thing that you've mm-hmm. worked so hard for. And so I, I decided my senior year of high school, I wasn't going to dance. I was just going to take the year mm-hmm. off. And I got involved with school stuff. I did a play. I got, you know, I got um, voted on the homecoming court. I was like, suddenly mm-hmm. I got to was part of a clique. I had friends at school. <laughs> you know, it was like this weird. I just hadn't done any of that stuff. And so I did all of that, but then I'm looking at colleges and I, I didn't really have skills anywhere else. I'd spent my mm-hmm. whole childhood being a mm-hmm. dancer. So I was auditioning for, you know, dance programs at colleges and, and I didn't have money to go to school. So that was going to be a big piece of it. Just how could I get some scholarship money? And I just, I had to fall back on the dance, but, mm-hmm. but I had started shifting my, my um, focus mm-hmm. from ballet to, well, modern dance you know Mm -hmm. that was kind of liberating if you think about it and ballet is so pulled up and defying gravity Mm -hmm. then you get to be a modern dancer and you get to kick off those 
fucking point shoes. <laughs> you just get to be grounded. And, and so, um, yeah, so, so I did end up going to college on a dance scholarship. The, the college that I went to was a very small women's college in even farther northern Georgia. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really the college experience that I wanted, but it was where the money was. So mm-hmm. I did it for a couple of years, but I just got really restless and it, um, yeah, just, I, I had already decided I, I wanted to transfer to another school. I just was feeling like if I want to be a dancer, nobody's ever going to see me in Gainesville, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I was a performance major, but you know, really I felt like when I left there, I was just going to end up teaching and I didn't really want to teach. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I had a friend from school who was graduating and she'd gotten a job with Merce Cunningham's company uh-huh. in the office. She was on mm-hmm. the, I think the development side of things. So she was moving to New York and she had a friend who was an opera singer that she'd met, you know, on an internship and she'd already been in New York for a long time. And so they were going to live together, but they were looking for more roommates. And she was like, well, why don't you just take a year off and come to New York and audition and live with us and just see what happens. And it was just a time that I was like, yeah, you know, maybe I will do that. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because I wasn't a kid that dreamed of living in New York. And mm-hmm. I had no aspirations for Broadway. I don't sing. That wasn't my thing. And I'd been to New York once and I was so happy to get home. <laughs> it, was like, <laughs> it was a great trip, but it was just too much, you know. Mm-hmm. So I never pictured myself living here. And then all of a sudden, here I am at 20, <laughs> like completely ignorant of what I'm getting myself into. I just, Mm -hmm. I remember that I sold my car and that basically paid my finder's fee for the apartment that Uh we found. And we had to pay first and last month's rent. And it was like, I had worked this whole summer to save up to come to New York. And by the time I paid all that, I came here with $500 and traveler's checks, (laughs) three suitcases. And I had no job and I had no skills. And it was just this like really... People think, oh, it's so brave that you did that. And it really was not brave. It was just like total stupidity. I just <laughs> had no idea. I had no idea. And so that year that I had thought, oh, this year, I'll spend a year in New York. I'll just audition. I'll, maybe I'll get a job dancing with mm-hmm. a modern dance company and we'll tour and I'll travel the world. None of that happened. That year was just like, okay, I got to find a job. I got to pay rent. I got to figure out the subway system. It was so exhausting, you know, I would like just go out and run one errand and I'd be so exhausted. I'd just have to go home and take a nap because it's just the energy here is so different. Mm -hmm. So that whole first year I was here, I barely did anything. I mean, I did a lot, but I wasn't dancing and, and I was living with these artists. So we were, you know, two dancers, an opera singer, and then this other singer who was more of a cabaret style singer. She mm-hmm. moved in. And so we were all, you know, creative. And I was going to a lot of opera to see Anita. And I was, you know, I was, I was uh, ushering at the Joyce. I was seeing mm-hmm. a lot of dance. I was trying to get to classes. But did you start studying the city? Did you start uh, taking classes in the city? I was taking classes, and there was so much here. That was the other thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was used to, you know, there's like there's like two games in town, and now mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I can go to the Graham studio, and I can take Eric Hawkins' technique, and I can do, it was just like they were all here. And 
it was hard to even just focus on one thing. So I, I was like, I was dabbling and, and not really finding my home. And, and I, and I had to take a job sitting at a desk. I was just a receptionist and, you know, you'd work all day and you're kind of tired. It was hard to motivate to go to class after that. And mm-hmm. Plus like people were going out to dinner and having drinks and that was kind of fun. So, you know, the first year I got a little off track, but, um, but it just meant that I had to stay another year. And, uh-huh. and then I just blinked and it had been 21 years. And <laughs> So how did you then get back into tap? And can you tell us a little bit about the piece you're going to do? Yeah. So I, um, you know, had a long sort of found a modern niche for a long time, played with that. And then I was doing the artist way. And in one of the writing things, writing assignments, there was a, a I don't know, something came out about like I was trying to be more comfortable with improvisation. And mm-hmm. um, was it the if you didn't have uh, if you weren't afraid, what would you do that that chapter? I don't remember what chapter it was, but I I don't even remember what the assignment was. But I was I was trying to learn to play the harmonica. I really wanted uh-huh. to play the harmonica. I just thought it'd be so cool if I could just like pick it up and wail on it. And I've been taking lessons and I wasn't good at it. But I kept hitting walls around improvisations. There was a lot of improv mm-hmm. in the harmonica. But I came from this really strict ballet background and I wanted choreography, you know. And it was just so uncomfortable for me. So I was thinking about improv. And as I was writing, I was thinking, you know, maybe I should try tap dancing. Because there's a lot of improv and tap, but it's still dancing. So maybe mm-hmm. it'll feel more comfortable than like trying to play an instrument. Sort of like a gateway drug. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A gateway art. A gateway art. And I had, you know, I had seen um, Savion Glover used to, to come to this weird restaurant. It was weird that he was there. I don't know why he was there, but it was in Brooklyn Heights. And it was, it was like a sports bar. Like mm-hmm. sometimes he would come and they would have these like open tap nights. Mm-hmm. And I had seen that once and I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. That's not the tap mm-hmm. dancing I was doing back in mm-hmm. Dolly Dinkle studio. And then I'd seen Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk a couple of times. And that was just so cool. So like my image of what tap was was mm-hmm. shifting a little bit. And so while I was writing that, I was like, yeah, maybe tap. Maybe that's my gateway art. Yeah, maybe I'll try that. And I literally closed my notebook and I was at work. I rented a space in a Pilates studio. So the Mm -hmm. front desk, I was walking past the front desk and the girl behind the desk was like, Oh, Jen, come look at this thing on my computer. And I went around the desk and there's a flyer on the desk that says taste of tap adult Mm -hmm. tap workshop. And it was at steps, which was just a couple Mm -hmm. blocks away. And it was starting like that weekend. That's so weird. I was just thinking That's about that, that synchronicity, totally. right? Yeah. Which is the real thing, right? Mm-hmm. If you're looking for it. So then that that I took that four week workshop and I was hooked. That was it. I was like, mm-hmm. This is so much fun. What have I been doing with my life? Mm-hmm. Not this thing. So I just got obsessed. That was like it. It was like it was when I was a kid finding ballet. It was just this new thing, and I got to be a musician and a dancer, and it was hard, but it was so fun. And you you connect with the other people in your classes in a mm-hmm. different way. So there was also that like connection with 
other dancers. I mean, I'd be in modern dance classes with people for years and know their face and never know their name. Mm-hmm. Tap dance, you're just there's like, more of a community. Totally, you're like making noise together and everybody's talking and they're just loud and you know it's just mm-hmm. so the connection of it was really fun too. Um, so yeah, so that's it. So I got really obsessed and um and I'm. I mean, I'm an intermediate tap dancer at best. It's it's super hard. Really, none of my other dance background helps a whole lot with tap because it's mm-hmm. just another whole thing, you know. Um, but it's been a blast. And so um, I was sort of challenged, like, well, what am I going to do here in the studio without a musician, mm-hmm. without other people? It's going to be boring just to listen to me. I'm not that good of a tap dancer. <laughs> but um, there's a choreographer, Josh Hilberman, and he's brilliant. And he has this really cool acapella piece, which is a, a big, long piece. And it's really meant for lots of people. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of counterpoint and and um, cannons. And, but it's a super hip groove. And uh, anyway, I just whittled it away in parts and pieces to mm-hmm. make it short. And hopefully I won't blow it too much, Josh. But um, anyway, he was very sweet to let me bring it into the studio. So Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Okay. Here we go. Jen Williams doing Josh. Uh, Josh Hilberman, and it's uh, Capella Josh. Capella Josh. Okay, Jen is taking the mufflers off of her tap shoes now, and she's standing up and moving over towards her practice uh, pad. Well, that was wonderful. I think you're you're at least advanced intermediate. Okay, you're no longer with the little kids group. You've definitely moved on to the uh, adults that can move group. <laughs> that was wonderful. 
Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for giving me a chance to uh, make some noise. Absolutely. Always good to make some noise. So, you know, I know you from college, from your postgraduate work. So how did you go from ushering at the Joyce and working to getting into massage therapy and then personal training and those things? Um, yeah, my first job in New York, like I said, was sitting behind a desk and, um, it hurt (laughs) at the end of the day, my body would sort of hurt. I had never been so stagnant Mm -hmm. (laughs) all day. And, um, I really didn't have a lot of marketable skills. And so I was thinking, well, I should go back to school. Um, but Maybe study physical therapy because um, then I could at least be active and I could be working with dancers. And um, But I couldn't really afford to go back to school. And a friend of mine said, oh, you know, there's a massage school in New York. Maybe you should look into that. You know, maybe that'll be a stepping stone to PT. And, um, and I'd had some good experiences with massage. I, I had this ankle injury that that I'd gone to PT for for a long time, and I just had built up so much scar tissue, I'd completely lost my range of motion. And, the, and was that when you were younger? That was when I was how, in college, mm-hmm. yeah. And the PTs just kept giving me all these TheraBand exercises and wobble board exercises, but I had no range of motion. I couldn't point my foot. And finally, one day, this guy was like, well, let me just do some hands-on manual stuff. <laughs> and he just did some friction and... 20 minutes later, I had everything back. I'm like, why did I waste my time for months with you guys hooking me up to all these machines? So the massage idea was like, oh, that, that's an interesting idea. And uh, yeah, it was it was sort of affordable enough. And um, I could complete the program. At that time, it was just a one-year program. So mm-hmm. I, I had to do another desk job while I was in school. But then I was kind of quickly out. And at least I got to work with other dancers and I got a flexible enough schedule that I could dance more. You know, by then I'd given up on the idea that anybody was going to pay me a living wage to be a dancer. And mm-hmm. it was just about trying to find ways to dance as much as I could and let the thing that, that is paying me be fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that was massage. And then, you know, and then and then later it all kind of organically happened that I was doing massage full time for a long time and started to have some body limitations there and I started doing kettlebells with you and I was like well this kettlebell thing is kind of fun it doesn't feel like going to the gym and sitting on those stupid machines like Mm -hmm. I can get behind kettlebells so um yeah so then that was my gateway drug into (laughs) fitness I Mm -hmm. guess because fitness really had to come in through the back door for me girl Mm -hmm. I grew up in like the rural south and public school and like fitness to me was PE in, in elementary school. And from kindergarten till sixth grade, PE class consisted of calisthenics, running laps and dodgeball Mm -hmm. every day. That's all we did. Uh, At least you did calisthenics. We did the calisthenics, but the, you know, the running hated also running Mm -hmm. was often, um, it was a punishment. If you got in trouble, you had to run laps. And it's hot down there, you know, like <laughs> we're running in this like outside or in the gym. It's freaking hot down there. So I hated running. The calisthenics were fine. 
And the dodgeball, I mean, come on. This is like a violent, aggressive game where the big kids are going to throw You say that like there's something wrong with it. Yeah, that's terrible. Lazy lazy programming. Totally, totally. There you go. Here's a bunch of balls, throw them at each other for an hour. Exactly. But that's that's what fitness was to me. Or then later it was like Jane Fonda videos and, you know, that was a little Mm -hmm. more like dance. But still, it's like, it's kind of lame choreography. So, um, so yeah, I had to kind of find fitness through the back door and it really was kettlebells because they felt fun to me. You know, it didn't feel Mm -hmm. so boring. That's the other thing, like the stationary bike. It's so boring running. It's so boring. Everything's so boring. Kettlebells aren't boring. Like you got to stay awake for that. So it, it felt like I didn't, it didn't feel like I was, I mean, it did feel like I was working out, especially with Mm -hmm. Vince's boot camps sometimes. I called you really mean names in my head. Yeah, but that's okay. It was temporary. Some people call me mean names to my face. So. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that about bikes and running and stuff like that. I found that same thing. I'm finding now it's more of a necessity. Ah. Because I'm not good at it. Yeah. So if you're not good at running and if you have certain weaknesses, there's really nothing wrong with machines. Like I got totally away from them for a while. Uh-huh. And now it's like, holy cow. I have so many imbalances and I'm weak in so many different areas. Machines are like three days a week. Interesting. And the other stuff that was so much more fun is now really, as far as like my training volume goes, that's a small, small portion. It's things that I'm bad at. Hell, 10 minutes on a bike gets me warmed up. So you kind of need that. It's like, I think at one point in time, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater saying, oh, this is bad. This is all we need. And that's kind of always been the trend in fitness. And it's like, no, there's a place for everything. Let's not throw everything out. You know, where, you know, where are we? What do we need right now? So Larry Betts is joining us. Uh, Larry has competed in two state championships as a high school gymnast. Uh, He continued pursuing his passion for fitness by studying numerous styles of martial arts. And naturally he became increasingly intrigued by the idea of improving health and performance through diet and exercise. In 2010, he sold his shares on the first club he owned and set out to open a training center that offered his clients the best training tools and coaches available. So he is now the director of the Brooklyn Athletic Club, where he offers high-quality personal training as the heart and soul of the club. And by making serious training accessible, safe, and enjoyable, Brooklyn Athletic Club delivers dramatic results in a casual environment with a fun and open approach. So welcome, Larry. Thank you, Vince. I guess you went to my website. (laughs) Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. How about that? Uh, I'm kind of resourceful that way. I think you pulled it right off. (laughs) So I had somebody write that. (laughs) uh Yeah, they did a pretty good job there. So, you know, it's interesting what you say, because I know you came up as a gymnast and Jen came up as a dancer. And there's this very much all or nothing black and white. You're either this or you're that. And certainly when I came up as a dancer, we didn't lift weights. Oh, you can't lift weights. Yeah, do some push-ups and sit-ups to, you know, look a little better in the mirror, but don't lift weights because that'll make you muscle-bound. But in the last 20 years, that's all changed. You want to jump high. You want to stay injury-free. You need to lift weights, right? And then while Larry was speaking to, you know, you want to have 
some cardiovascular capability, maybe you do need to sometimes do the simple things and not always do the neurologically complex things. But it's interesting how, you know, we come to things from different places, but then at the end of the day, it's like, well, you need to eat your vegetables and some grains and some proteins. And yeah, you can have dessert too to spice it up. But, you know, you need all of these things, not just one thing. Depending on what you're trying to do. Yeah. If you're a bodybuilder. If you're mm-hmm. an Olympic lifter, you're not mm-hmm. doing more than three or four reps. <laughs> right. right. But then there's a trade-off. You know, exactly. there's always a trade-off. So if you're going to do this, then you're going to sacrifice this. So Interesting. You and I kind of grew up in the same era. With, mm-hmm. with all we knew about weightlifting was bodybuilding and what Joe Weider told mm-hmm. us. All right. We grew up in – no, I'm serious. It was in the mm-hmm. 80s. No, when I had. started training, I was training people at Pumping Iron Gym. Yeah. Up and, on Seventy Sixth Street, we kind of I kind of refer this to pre-internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We did not have any real information till after the internet, and also I had read somewhere that we really didn't have any information about sports, you know, explosive training till the Berlin Wall came down. And we got all the manuals from Russia. Now, I don't hmm. know if that's true or not. Well, in well, the in the eighties, you know, NSCA went over there, and there started, was obviously a big tradition of Olympic lifting here. But yeah, I yeah. see your point. So it started coming in. Mm-hmm. different modalities, different types mm-hmm. of training. And we got a little bit away mm-hmm. from just bodybuilding, which mm-hmm. is pretty much all we knew, which is at a certain point in your life, maybe that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. I know in my fifties, I want to keep muscle on my body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. want to lose muscle. So it seems that a bodybuilding program, I like to lift weights mm-hmm. and it seems like bodybuilding is keeping muscle on my body. I might lose some things, but you know, then I have to adjust that every block or so. Mm-hmm. So, So, Jen, getting back to this idea of dance and fitness and also massage, how do you find that, you know, you spoke about the tradition or maybe tradition isn't the right word, but the coming into the dance class and you go through this routine or this ritual is really a better word. And all of that training in your young life, how did that then affect you when you started doing massage and had to put together an hour session for massage? Or when you started training people, do you see a connection between your art and your therapeutic and exercise work? Yeah, I think um, just that thinking of of a whole class or a whole massage session or a whole training session that's going to consist of Oh, nice warm up, you know, you're, you're going to just build your, your class or your session with keeping in mind the whole, I guess, you know, starting with, with a, some kind of a warm up and moving towards more specific things. I think, you know, that for sure I, I take in into all my work. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you find now knowing what you know from, all the anatomy you studied and all of the exercise science and physiology that you studied, if you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were 8, 10, 12, et cetera, uh, how would this knowledge have affected you if you had it back then? Yeah, I mean, it just would have been nice to have started sooner because, I mean, just the anatomy background at the massage through the massage program completely changed my dancing. Just having a basic understanding of anatomy and muscles and movement 
like, why wasn't that a part of my dance life? You know, mm-hmm. why wasn't there anatomy for dancers somewhere in there? You know, I knew more about the anatomy of worms and frogs and sharks from, you know, <laughs> high school biology. But like, why weren't we talking about just like basic human physiology? Like it really didn't. Again, I was in public school in the deep south, so you know I didn't have the greatest academic program. But yeah, I just I think I wish that I could have had some of that information sooner because because it completely changed the way that I moved, just mm-hmm. understanding it a little better. With the the tap dancing you're doing now, how do you find that this knowledge that you have affects your dancing? Do you do more self care? Do you know how to? improve your flexibility or maintain your flexibility yeah, or for sure the older i get the more i have to manage <laughs> different uh, body issues and and the more tools i have in my toolbox to do that for sure i mean the one thing about tap dancing it's just much less demanding physically on your body than a lot of mm-hmm. other dance forms so you know it's, it's much kinder in that way and, it, and and the challenge there is certainly physical but it's also you know, learning to be a musician and keeping time and, Mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of challenges. But I I do think, yeah, I just know, I know how to manage my lower back issues and what exercises I have to do and what helps with the foam roller and what body mechanics are smarter when I'm, you know, working, doing massages. And and so just managing, yeah, managing my own stuff for Mm -hmm. sure. It's it's much easier with, with all that background knowledge. Awesome. So we're going to take a quick break here and do a little bit of housekeeping. Get stored Wednesdays, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. You are listening to the Physical Culture Music and Art Show. And we have Larry Betts and Jen Williams with us. Want to give a quick shout out to the Swedish Institute who has underwritten this show. Swedish Institute has been in continuous operation in New York City for over 100 years, and they've added high-quality healthcare programs, including personal training, nursing, and medical assisting to their long-standing massage therapy foundation. Their school provides the hands-on and professional approach to education to get you to the workplace. You can contact Swedish Institute at swedishinstitute.edu or give them a call at 212-924-5900, extension 199. That's 212-924-5900, extension 199. We are streaming live on Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 organization. If you log on to the website, which if you're listening, you already are logged on, unless you're using the app. However, you can make a donation, a tax-deductible donation, to Radio Free Brooklyn to support the good work they do in creating a atmosphere for discovery, whether it's music or information or the other news programs that they have, as well as their new teen program, 
where they teach best media practices and podcasting and radio to teenagers in the area. So we are back with Larry Betts and Jen Williams. So, Larry, you came up as a gymnast. You grew up on Long Island? Yes. Yeah. So how did you then make your way into fitness? Okay, so if you're a high school gymnast, there's really not a whole lot to do with that unless you make it to the collegiate level, mm-hmm. all right? Mm-hmm. And I was not good enough to compete in the collegiate level, and there was not a lot of recreation for <clears throat> to do at that time. So I started devoting my attention to martial arts. I was like, mm-hmm. all right, you know, this seems like a next thing to do. It's good body movement, good awareness, good training. And through my training in martial arts, it led me to meet some people that were in strength training and weightlifting. And that got my attention because I was always kind of a skinny guy. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, let me try and get some muscle on my body. Started weightlifting, always doing martial arts. Went back and forth for probably 20 years. Mm-hmm. And had the opportunity to open up my first gym back in 2004. Fell in love with it. Thought I wanted to be a trainer. Found about the program at Swedish. Went back to school. Wanted to beat my head against the wall. Um, was wondering why I was doing this, <laughs> you know, talking about anatomy and trying to figure all that out. It's like, wow. So did that, went through your program and have continued studying and, you know, just kind of fell in love with the idea of actually programming and understanding different strength qualities and, and how to program that and how to, you know, post rehab. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier about physical therapy. Yeah. Most don't really progress past the thoroughbred. <laughs> so at that point, you know, seeing mm-hmm. that just so like, well, how do we get these people actually from post rehab and get them stronger? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so that maybe they don't get injured again. Correct. Maybe. Correct. Mm-hmm. And that was actually became one of my things. It's like, I just got really good at post rehab mm-hmm. and um, yeah. And that's where we're at today. So when you were, first of all, you're on, um, Main event was rings? Actually, pommel horse. Pommel horse. Oh, pommel horse. Okay. Yeah, that was, okay. I had made it to the state champions two years in a row, 10th grade, you know, uh, what's that, sophomore and junior year. Mm-hmm. I did compete on the parallel bars and the rings. Mm-hmm. I was never good at vaulting or florex. Uh-huh. And hindsight being 2020, mm-hmm. my legs were really weak. Ah, okay. Had I known uh-huh. that, and if somebody had seen your legs a week, you're never going to uh-huh. be able to do all around. We got to get your legs stronger so you could vault and mm-hmm. jump. It may have changed the trajectory of my career because mm-hmm. in college you have mm-hmm. to be, do every event. There's, well, you don't specialize. That sort of answers, but it also segues into my question. What was the view on weightlifting for gymnasts when you were coming up? Was it just a complete blind spot or was it actually like, oh, no, you shouldn't do that? It was always, you know, body weight. Mm -hmm. And if you are in a a training hall for two to three hours doing rings, Mm -hmm. you would probably do what? 50 muscle ups a session (laughs) because that was the starting position. It's Mm -hmm. like, all right, I got to do a muscle up just so I could do a handstand. So I get into an iron cross so I could start working on my giants. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so, you know, if you're doing 50 or 60 muscle ups a workout, you really, you know, there's not much left to to strength train, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. put same thing on the high bar. You're always pulling yourself up to get into position. A pommel horse, just, you know, a lot of dips. You're, 
parallel bars, a lot of dips. So, you know, it was just a lot of upper body dominant mm-hmm. movements. And being that the four mm-hmm. events, parallel bars, mm-hmm. pummel horse, high bar, rings, it's all upper body. Mm-hmm. There's no lower body in those four events. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Vaulting and floor exercise, you need mm-hmm. to, a lot of le- leg power. And now, um, mm-hmm. what are these guys doing? Triple back flips and, you know. Exactly. I mean, amazing. Do you remember anybody? I remember Cheney Humphreys in the Olympics. He started to look very different. Like, from what I understand, he actually weight trained as well as doing his, uh, you know, gymnastics training. Were you, are you familiar with him? I am not. I'm familiar. Yeah. But do you think that if you had squatted, if you had deadlifted, that that would have changed things? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially off season. Mm-hmm. You know, if yeah, you had that absolutely. opportunity to take that mm-hmm. a 12 week block and just mm-hmm. try and get really, really strong where you're weak. And then like any other sport, just a maintenance dose when you're in competition mode, mm-hmm. you know, just maybe one day a week just mm-hmm. to keep that strength up when you're absolutely. in season. Yeah. Would, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure it would. Benefit. And did you guys get any recovery training, any nutrition training, you know, advice back when you were in high school? 1970s? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> There was none of that uh-huh. going around. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, Jen, I'm wondering in terms of dance, you know, you had to have a certain look with your upper body, a certain position, but did you ever find any sort of the inverse of what Larry was talking about with gymnastics for men, at least being so upper body dominant? Did you find your dance was so lower body dominant? Would you have benefited maybe from doing more upper body type of work yeah for sure um just in general yes but the aesthetics the ballet aesthetic is still so you know you got to be so thin and and there's still i've been working with um the ballet uh the pennsylvania ballet this season as a massage therapist and and you know they'll still do pilates and i see them some of them and the men for sure will do more strength training the women are not using weights i mean they're still mm-hmm. just the aesthetics they don't want muscle on their upper mm-hmm. body they really don't want any muscle in their upper body it's very lower body dominant um unfortunately cuz just mm-hmm. in general you know just to have that stability is so important. So when you were dancing, how many push-ups could you do? Oh, I mean, as a modern dancer, we, we <laughs> okay. did push-ups, mm-hmm. but as a ballerina, mm-hmm. none. I, I I remember doing push-ups on my knees in calisthenics uh, mm-hmm. in elementary school and, and, you know, getting kind of mocked by the coach because I had to drop my <laughs> knees. I couldn't even do one. No. But mm-hmm. modern dance, you know, that's much more physical and you're doing mm-hmm. a lot of floor work and there's much more appreciation. But still, you know, people didn't really cross train. You know, Pilates was the crossover for dancers mm-hmm. because that was mm-hmm. the way like you suddenly got some resistance training. But you still, you know, this idea that we can only develop long, thin muscles, you know, you can't get bulky. Mm-hmm. There's that idea that's still. Yeah, that's like the eating wouldn't have anything to do with that. Exactly. Right. So, Larry, I'd really I'd like to talk for a minute about Maxim because you got into Williamsburg at like a really good time. Were you guys why why Williamsburg? Why Maxim? Was it by accident or was it by design? How did that first gym come about? Good question. My um, at the time I had been training in jujitsu 
at Henzo Gracie Academy. And my training partner was trying to get a gym open in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And it was him and another guy. We met, we had lunch. Everybody seemed to hit it off. We found a location and it went from there. And at that time in 2003, 2004, there was maybe one other gym. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, it took off. It was, Mm -hmm. it was really, really very successful. We put together a nice package. And uh, from there, things moved on. Sold my ownership. The new owner is also Mm -hmm. a graduate of Swedish, Mike. Mm -hmm. um, Great guy. He's doing a great job over there. And now it's called Chalk over yes, there, right? correct. Yeah. And uh, I had pursued my passion to to really build a training center. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, I love training. I love working with the trainers. We're out there every day. Um, and your traditional gym isn't really built mm-hmm. to handle clients, to do small group training, to do semi-private training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have a boatload of machines on the floor, you need them. Mm-hmm. But it makes it really tough to do a group of four people. Right. Um, right. But if you have, you know, six power racks mm-hmm. and a lot of turf, mm-hmm. it makes it a little bit easier to get a group mm-hmm. going and get a good strength and conditioning program going mm-hmm. with uh, small group training. Right. And now you see a lot of the commercial gyms, the New York Sports Club, the Crunch, they're taking away some machines to put in these more functional areas and do boot camps or small groups or things like that. So they're sort of switching over to that model. What do you think was the main thing as a business person that you learned from your experience at Maxim? That's a, hmm. sorry, I I didn't coach Larry on any of these questions beforehand. It's it's, it's, uh, interesting. (laughs) Sorry for the radio silence there. Um, for that location, I'd say our timing was was right on. Mm-hmm. There was really mm-hmm. very little competition. Rents were very inexpensive. We were able to get a very good lease. Mm-hmm. And that that's huge in trying to do any business in New York mm-hmm. City is if you can't get a good lease, you're going to have a hard time. Right. Okay. Right. So I would say, you know, a good product, mm-hmm. um, a good lease, and mm-hmm. at the right time. Absolutely. So we had a, we, we, we hit it pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, at we didn't have any real training staff at the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, that developed a few years later. Mm-hmm. And um, once I started to understand more about training and running trainers, I wanted to do something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that sort of leads to my next question. What was your main lesson from Maxim about training and about how to run specifically a training program as opposed to being a, you know, GM of a commercial gym and, you know, thinking more about the treadmills and the machines and membership sales to running trainers. What had made it challenging at um, Maxim is the trainers had been there since we started and they were Mm -hmm. basically independent contractors. And that, when I wanted to start taking it over and make them part of the business, that's, made it very, very challenging to make that. So mm-hmm. starting fresh, everybody works for me. Mm-hmm. That's it. And, you know, if you want to go work in an independent gym, that's great. That's fine. That's mm-hmm. awesome. If you want to work here, you have to work for us. You mm-hmm. have to report to Paul. You have to report to our director of training. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do the group strength and conditioning class, you have to follow our program. Mm-hmm. Um, we write a whole program for the month. When you're doing our semi-privates, Paul writes 
the blocks and, and the tests and everything is laid out. You know, mm-hmm. you're following our system, which really works out very, very well. Like last week, two train is out. Mm-hmm. Very simple. Take their folders, mm-hmm. <laughs> take the tablet, whatever we need. And it's like, oh, this is where you are. This is what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in fact, one of our newer clients said, I've never seen trainers keep such detailed records mm-hmm. of everything that's going on. That's well, yeah, <laughs> we have to, because how do I know what you do to do next week? Or if mm-hmm. this was not good for you, if you come in the next day, you're in pain. Well, mm-hmm. that was not good. We can't do that one with you. We have to change it. We have to figure out what's wrong. Do I refer you out? Can I just do some corrective strategies with you to, to fix this? So, you know, if you're just coming in and, and, and the trainer's winging it and not keeping ac- accurate records, um, mm-hmm. it's costly. <laughs> what would you say is the the difference between what you do at Brooklyn Athletic Club? Because that's what we're talking about in terms of the blocks and the way you're running things. What, what makes Brooklyn Athletic Club and training there different than training with your one-on-one trainer at a commercial gym? I honestly can't answer that too accurately because I never really worked at a commercial gym. Mm -hmm. I worked at New York health and racket for about six weeks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like, you know what? This just isn't working out for me guys. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, what, what, what was it about that and your experience at Maxim that you wanted to change that you thought people needed? So real quick our when I was at New York um, health and racket, the trainer meetings were all more about, you know, sales and what we're doing with the clients this month. Mm -hmm. Um, When I had my first gym, there was no real um, structure like we have now. Whereas now every month we have a trainer meeting. How are Mm -hmm. all the clients doing? What's going on? What are are we doing this month in the small group training? And what are we doing in the semi-privates? Okay. So, and we have three semi-privates. We have uh, semi-private strength, semi-private performance, which is the one I teach. And then the semi-private body weight, which is a gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Um, and we program, um, you know, different blocks. I would have to say the biggest difference with our small group training mm-hmm. is we always have a strength component. It is not a boot camp. It mm-hmm. is not coming in there to get beat down. There is always at least one or two heavy lifts. Mm-hmm. That strength is all heavy lift. It's the, mm-hmm. the three main lifts, squat, bench, mm-hmm. deadlift, and accessory work. Mm-hmm. So. so if I wanted to, or if Jen wanted to come in and start training at Brooklyn Athletic Club, and we wanted to, you know, get the most out of it. Okay. okay we, you know, money isn't an object. Time isn't an object. What, you know, where can I start? Do I have to wait till a new group starts and register or can I start at any time? What would my pathway be? If you're looking to do the semi-privates and the small group training, mm-hmm. anytime. You can jump in anytime. Mm-hmm. We um, we structure the programming so we mm-hmm. could actually teach you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, I almost look at it because I have martial arts backgrounds. Like you have mm-hmm. to, you have to teach people how to move. Mm-hmm. And, you know, good movement is good movement. You know, just cause you're doing fast and doing hard doesn't mean it's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anybody can make anybody sick. You just cut out the rest. They'll throw mm-hmm. up. All right. But you know, it, good movement will gash you just as much going slower tempo. Mm-hmm. Um, something I see that's kind of lacking in a lot of um, small group training. If you're working on a, you know, a four second lowering phase, mm-hmm. that's going to gas people. So even though I'm just starting out and there are other people in the class who have been there six months or three years, 
I can still come into that class the same way I would come into a dojo when I'm a white belt, even though there are purple belts and brown belts and black belts. Correct. Because we cap the classes at, let's say, 12 Mm -hmm. in the small group, it's pretty easy to coach that up. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not a class of 40. Mm -hmm. 40, you know, you're kind of on your own. (laughs) (laughs) We've seen it. We've seen Uh it. You know, that seems to be the trend, though. You know, Mm -hmm. people want to come in, get a good sweat and leave. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit harder when you want to teach them something. And if they're not good at something, people don't like to look at their weaknesses. Right. I don't right. like to look at my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. I got weak legs. I hate to squat. <laughs> I hate to squat. I hate to run. Guess what I got to do? I got to squat and run. <laughs> uh-huh. So, Jen, going back to your dance background, when you came into fitness, what was the thing that you thought was wrong with fitness and that sort of bothered you? about fitness because you you clearly avoided fitness for a very long time in terms of an industry and you know going to the gym or getting on a treadmill or what people tend to think of as traditional fitness yeah i think um i don't know dancers are a little bit snobby about (laughs) movement you know it's not fitness we're artists you know even to to i wouldn't have even considered myself an athlete you know it it, it was Mm -hmm. all about the art so i think there was that mindset um that's kind of in there ingrained um i you know because i as a dancer you're used to being in class right that's that's it's Mm -hmm. all about class you Mm -hmm. are so conditioned that that is part of your life and um I just, I wouldn't know what to do in a gym. I would walk into a commercial gym and just feel overwhelmed. They're like, you know, there's going to be like a big alarm bell that goes off. Like she doesn't belong here. She doesn't know what she's doing. Like, <laughs> what am I going to do with all these machines and those weights look mm-hmm. scary? And Which is probably exactly the opposite. It's like nobody cares what you do. That's That's sort of the problem in a way. And that I did. I mean, I would say that's something that bothered me because I am I'm so aware of aesthetics. Right. And 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 how it looks when someone moves. And and once I was dipping a toe in the fitness pool, you know, and I'd look around and see some of the body mechanics and like people were moving in these really dangerous looking ways with these heavy weights and, ah, you know, it's hard to even watch sometimes, you know, and that's still, if I go into a bigger, which I don't do very often into a bigger commercial gym and I I just can't really look around that much because Mm -hmm. I see, or even on YouTube, you know, you, you, you like start jumping down that rabbit hole of YouTube videos and you see some really scary stuff. The good news Mm -hmm. is it has gotten better. Has it? (laughs) I'd say in the past, would you say in the past 10 years, I would say it's gotten a lot better. It probably has, but I think it's also, you look at the things that you know are going to be good. I mean, I think I personally, when I'm looking on YouTube, there are, you know, some videos, some um, sites, some things that I just won't even look at if I'm going to specifically a thing that I know is going to be produced at some level of quality. You know, I've I've become a more discerning (laughs) connoisseur of using YouTube. Yeah, Uh true. Because uh, yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. very true. There are a yeah. lot of very very talented coaches out there putting yeah. out a mm-hmm. lot of good content, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I appreciate them putting out good content. It's it's Absolutely. very very helpful because sometimes I'm like, oh man, what am I going to program? Uh, how many times can I do this? Same thing within a year, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I was like, 
oh, that's a really great variation. I know what we're trying to accomplish here. This will fit in in this spot perfectly. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But no, I, without a doubt, 10 years ago, it was scary. <laughs> it, you both hit on something inadvertently. Jen, when you were talking, you talked about the class. And Larry, you were talking about your small groups and your semi-private. So, Larry, how much do you think there has been a shift in fitness from one-on-one -on -one training to this small group, semi-private? And do you think that there's a, a benefit to that? Without a doubt. I mean, literally in the past decade, um, look at CrossFit. Mm -hmm. It's built a strong community. It has brought weightlifting to the forefront. It has mm -hmm. brought gymnastics to the forefront. Um, it's got people not afraid to lift weights to get their results. Mm -hmm. And um, a, like I said, a, a strong community. So if you could come in at a fraction and have a coach with you, so, you know, one-on-one -on -one training could cost you over $1,000 a month pretty mm -hmm. easily. And if you could take anywhere between $200 and $400 a month and get some really good coaching, that's huge. Mm -hmm. That's huge. That's just lowered the price barrier. All right. It's gotten people involved. And, you know, there's a lot of good CrossFit coaches out there. Some of my friends, they're, they're phenomenal coaches. They do a great job getting people to move better. Mm -hmm. and getting them not afraid of a barbell. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Getting them not afraid to deadlift. That's, you know, you're going to have to pick stuff up and down off the ground. Mm -hmm. So eventually, yeah, eventually if you drop your wallet on the ground. <laughs> you're going to have to pick it up. So, yeah, I would have to say over the past 10 years, and I would contribute that to, you know, other people were doing it beforehand. Mike mm -hmm. Boyle was doing it beforehand. Mark mm -hmm. Vestegan was doing it beforehand, but they have always catered to, you know, high level athletes, not mm -hmm. general pop. Mm -hmm. I'll just say too, I mean, I think the, the group, the small group class format is great. Just, I mean, the community aspect for sure, but just being in the class and seeing like, oh man, Megan is just really lifting heavy today. Like maybe I'm going to try to catch up with her and if, whether it's a little bit of competition or it's more just that like seeing other people do things and thinking, mm -hmm. oh, well, that's possible. I can, I can work harder and get there. And having everybody in the gym stop. And watch you do your first pull up and everybody starts <laughs> clapping. It's mm -hmm. it's you can't beat that energy. You mm -hmm. just can't beat that yeah, energy. I'm, I'm dreaming of that day. Yeah. <laughs> Someday that will happen. I I saw it happen in a girl yesterday. I was watching her with one of my trainers, and I think she did five ring pull-ups. Wow. I'm like, mm -hmm. within one year. Mm -hmm. Now, it, that's a lot of dedication. She's training yeah. three days a week, one on one, and she's always doing a lot of body weight. And he mm -hmm. got her from nothing. To five ring pull-ups. And I was like, That's Tyler, awesome. man, that is phenomenal. Good job, dude. Great. Larry, what's the website and contact for Brooklyn Athletic Club? www.brooklynathleticclub.com. Awesome. And Jen, where can they find you uh, in Philly for massage and training? It's uh, com. It's one N and Jen, J-E-N, Williams, L-M-T. Yep. Awesome. So thank you both very much. This has been the Physical Culture Music and Art Show streaming.